Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. David Kelly joins us now, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and he knows his beloved Liverpool finishing strong, I believe third in the Premier League, certainly doing better than the Tots. And David Kelly, you know, well, there's the yellow card and the red card. And what you look back as to your Catholic upbringing, all those B's and C's you earned in attempt to a pink card. You do a mid-year review and you got a pinkish A-plus tone to the American economy. Well, yes, and and, and this uh, latest set of exam results, uh, I think, will, uh, if anything, improve that. You know, we didn't see GDP move up, but what we did see is inventories actually fell even more in the first quarter than initially reported. And what that means is you get a big inventory bounce in the second quarter along with everything else. Uh, and then obviously seeing unemployment claims coming down towards 400,000. So there's a lot of improvement there. I, I also very much like seeing this growth in capital goods orders. Uh, so investment spending looks strong. So this is really an economy that is just, you know, growing in terms of momentum. And, you know, I think it just does pose a, pose a question, why are interest rates not higher, given how strong the economy is? Well, David, why aren't they? Why are they at 160, 79? Um, it, it is somewhat mysterious. I mean, I, it seems like the, the fixed income markets are, believe, the very dovish tone coming out of the Federal Reserve. But um, I don't know that they should believe the Federal Reserve in this, because I think when the data change, particularly when you get those higher uh, inflation numbers, and provided the economy continues to recover through the, through the fourth quarter of this year, I think the Fed is going to change its tune. It's going to taper a little earlier than they expect. I think it's going to raise short-term rates a little earlier than many people expect. So I do think we'll see higher long-term interest rates uh, by the end of the year. It's just surprising we haven't seen more so far. You just said you think they'll raise interest rates sooner than most people expect. David, when is that? Well, I think what they're going to do is, uh, first of all, I think they'll start tapering bond purchases at the start of next year or maybe even in December of this year. And I think they'll have to raise a federal funds rate uh, either at the end of 2022, maybe the December meeting in 2022 or, or else the January meeting in 2023. But right now, their forecasts are they don't think they're going to raise the short uh, federal funds rate until 2024 at the earliest. And I think that's just not realistic given you know, the economy is basically going to be fully healed, as far as we can see from a macroeconomic perspective, by early next year. And that just doesn't justify rates at close to zero. David, how much does the Fed policy really hinge on what type of spending plan the U.S. government decides to pass? This idea that we're looking right now under the Biden's new budget that was just released, or at least uh, as reported by The New York Times, the total U.S. debt held by the public would rise to 117 percent of the size of the economy by 2031. That's what Tom was talking about earlier. Can the Fed start to taper? We're starting to talk about borrowing that much more money in the near term. Well, well, they'd better because, you know, we need to figure out how do we finance that at normal interest rates? Because for as long as you keep interest rates at close to zero, you're distorting everything in capital markets. You know, you, you feed good businesses, but you allow bad businesses to stay alive. You allow speculation to, go, to run rampant. So it's very important the Federal Reserve normalizes. And if that means that the federal government has to be a little bit more picky about what it spends money on, that's probably a good thing. So uh, I don't think the Federal Reserve should get scared by the level of the debt. Frankly, they're encouraging this growth in debt by keeping rates so low. Well, 
But what are normal rates at this point? I mean, through every cycle we were talking about before that, that rates have come lower and lower and the more debt you incur, the slower growth is. So some people, including HSBC's Stephen Major, says it's a natural path of interest rates if benchmark borrowing costs should be lower for the U.S. government just based on that slower growth trajectory. Why is that not the case? Well, I don't think it should be the case. I think it's it's been caused by by a Federal Reserve, which is really uh, flooded the economy with liquidity. And the key thing is that flooding with liquidity doesn't actually stimulate aggregate demand. And I think this is what they've missed all along. That's why, big reason why the, the last expansion was so slow. But what's a good level of interest rates, a normal level? It's got to be a positive long-term real interest rate. If you lend money in the, in the long run, you should get a positive return after inflation. If you borrow money in the long run, it should be because you expect to invest in something that will generate a positive return after inflation. If you don't have an economy that's operating that way, you've got an economy that's heading in the wrong direction. And so I think at least positive mm -hmm. real rates, so that means 10-year uh, Treasury yields well above the rate of inflation, which you know even by the Fed's measure is, is close to 3% year over year based on the numbers we're going to get tomorrow. And Dr. Kelly, I want to take your J.P. Morgan work and dovetail it with your work at Putnam years ago with the iconic Bob Goodman, who was the great optimist. And that is, in the sum of the David Kelly analysis, are you worried about the gloom of jump conditions, given what we're doing with our fiscal and monetary policy, new theories, maybe seat of the pants approach? Or do you see a smoothness where investors can say, this will work out, we'll get to the other side of the bridge? Well, I, I don't I don't lose much sleep over it because I think it'll take a long time for the for any crisis to unfold if we have a crisis. But where I, I don't believe in modern monetary theory, I think it's nonsense. Um, and I think in the long run, the key thing is if you spend, if you run big budget deficits and if it actually helps the economy, then this level of debt will cause the economy to blow up. It's a, your modern monetary theory only works if it fails to actually achieve any improvement in human welfare. So it's, 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 it's a bad idea. I think you've got to try to get to normal interest rates. If you set interest rates at the correct level, then the economy will operate optimally. David, always good to get your view. Don't hold back. David Kelly there <laughs> of JP Morgan Asset Management, the chief global strategist. Right now, Peter Cheer joins us from Academy Securities on what we see in the markets. Peter, it's the question we've all been yammering about, but you're the pro. Why aren't yields moving given our fiscal stance, our fiscal numbers? I think there's three things. One is the Fed continues to buy a lot of debt, so that's offsetting it. We're seeing corporations able to defease their pension plan, so they are net sellers of equities to buy debt. And then I think just no one really believes that either we're going to get the fiscal stimulus at its full extent because that bipartisan feeling is gone. And also, quite frankly, no one really seems to believe that inflation is going to be anything but transitory. I do think it's going to be persistent, but right now the market hasn't seen inflation for so long that they're downplaying that potential. I don't think the number one question has changed that much, Pete, when it comes to a Treasury sell-off. How self-limiting would a Treasury market sell-off be? How self-limiting would it be? I think it would be very limiting. You know, when we go back and people want to talk about taper tantrum, you see much, much different positioning. All you even have to do is look at some of the ETFs, like an LQD, which is a long-dated investment-grade bond, TLT, long-dated treasuries. They've all had significant outflows. So the market is much more prepared for a tapering-type event. And if the Fed needed to, they had things like Operation Twist that they could pull out. So I think we could get to 2% on the 10-year this quarter, but it's going to be a struggle and nothing's going to gap a lot higher. It's very much under control at the moment. You think we could see a cycle high 
and I know it's early days and it's hard to make this call, Pete, but you can envision a cycle high of 2% on a 10-year. I think we're ultimately going to push up towards two and a quarter, two and a half percent, but that may be later this year or next year. And that's only once I think this inflation story becomes embedded. And I'm a little bit suspicious about what China was saying today, for example. I do believe China is working towards that shift to a domestic economy. So they care less about providing us with cheap exports. So I think there's all sorts of inflation stories out there away from this commodity rise that people aren't talking enough about and will start focusing on the summer. So what does that mean in terms of investing, this idea that there is a sort of self-limiting factor to the Treasury uh, sell-off that could potentially happen, and yet we do have price to perfection when you look at certain aspects of credit markets and when you look at certain slices of equity markets. Where are you seeing value? You know, I think it's going to be about a domestic growth story, right? We are going to see supply chains shift. I think there's going to be a real push to help build up our 5G and anything that we're kind of on that tech side competing with China, look for infrastructure spending and a real domestic focus. So I think that industry is really exciting. I think you're going to see a push to bring back a lot more healthcare, you know, medicines, pharmaceuticals. That can't be all sourced from China, given this kind of level of friction and competition. So we're going to see that brought around. That's going to change supply chains, uh, change where things are you know, made. I think that's the real opportunity, figuring out what this economy is going to look like in two years with this push towards sustainability, with bringing back some of these industries. And that's where the real opportunity is going to be. Peter, the full faith in credit space is not so much yield, but the price. There's somebody bidding on this paper. Now you mentioned the government and the U.S. government in as well. Do you see within your macroeconomics that the foreigners will walk away and all of a sudden the price will drift down and yield will drift up? I think we're actually okay on that, even when foreigners are stepping away, which is becoming a little bit more likely given that we have the worst negative real yields. I always get confused talking about negative real yields, but you can actually earn more on an after inflation basis in Japan right now, probably even in Germany, which seems bizarre given that they have lower negative yields than us. Um, But it's that real yields. I think it goes away, but there's just so much support from corporate pension plans, from pension plans in general, from retirees. I don't see it getting out of control. People are too positioned for it to get out of control. And finally, the Fed has a lot of tools that it can bring out if it starts seeing that risk. So I think we see yields go higher, but it's more of a steepening and it's relatively gradual and it's not going to be an impediment for stock market either. Pete, get back to New York soon. We need to catch up. It's good to hear from you, sir. Peter Chair, Academy Securities Head of Macro Strategy. This is without question our conversation of the day on the state of the American economy. High Frequency Economics writes brilliant, sharp notes on global economics, interest rate dynamics, and with Rubila Faruqi writes on the American economy. She joins us this morning. Rubila, I've really been looking forward to this. You move from a 10% boom economy down to something in the vicinity of 5% economy. When you and Carl Weinberg look at that sudden shock of deceleration from a boom economy, what are the inertial forces we're going to experience as we slow down? Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, you know, there are a lot of uh, dynamics in play over here. Uh, what we're looking at right now is, uh, you know, peak growth rate, which we expect to be around uh, 10% in the second quarter. But after that is where the uncertainty lies. We don't really know what a post-pandemic economy looks like. What we expect is a deceleration as these fiscal uh, measures expire. 
Uh, and, you know, it, there is a lot of uncertainty about how the labor market proceeds from here. And I think until we get to that point, until we get to, say, September, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty surrounding uh, what will happen in the <clears> second half. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic because we can't really say that we're going right. to go back to a 2% or whether we're going to keep uh, above potential. What will C-class officers do? How will corporations adapt and adjust to a decelerating economy we've never witnessed before? Well, I think, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, preparation for this. It's not like this is going to be a surprise. We don't expect to grow at a 10% growth rate. That's, you know, it's not exactly possible without, uh, you know, continued support from fiscal and monetary you know, policy. So I don't think this is going to be a shock. It's just going to be an adjustment. And again, we are still looking at a pretty strong growth rate with a lot of uncertainty surrounding uh, that outlook. Rubila, let's talk about tapering, not just talk about talking about it. Kathy Jones yesterday came on and she said that actually the bond market is responding logically to taper talk, which means yields down, price higher. This is not what people were expecting. They were expecting the Fed to allow yields to climb. Yet the indication is that if they taper some of the stimulus, it leads to slower growth. Which is it? Is this time different or are we going to fall back into that traditional paradigm? So what we're really seeing is uh, the confidence in the Fed, right, in what they're doing and what they are messaging. That is what this is all about. So if the Fed wanted to avoid a taper tantrum, this is exactly what they're accomplishing. And the messaging has been actually very good so far. I was surprised to see mention of tapering in the minutes, but it seems to me that that is exactly what they're doing, is, is really preparing for a range of possibilities. If things are stronger than expected, that the markets will expect that the Fed will start talking about tapering. But if things are not, then, you know, it's a more delayed process. So it's really, uh, I do think it's different this time. And I think what, what the Fed's objective right now is managing expectations, and they're doing a great job with that. We keep talking about how boring it is uh, this week and how it's even uh, boring amid a pivotal moment in the economy. What are we looking for? What are we waiting for to determine the trajectory of whether it's uh, very hot or whether it's a little bit cooler than people are currently pricing in? Well, it's all about the consumer. It's all about the labor market. It's all about incomes. So what we are seeing right now is the effect of what has happened so far. And what we have to consider is that we are starting, uh, we started the third quarter on a very high base. So even if we had very little progression, we would have still seen a very strong growth, growth rate, which we expect to see now. Now, what happens beyond that is a very different thing. We saw a huge deceleration last year because uh, when fiscal measures expired, but this time around, we'll be in a different situation, hopefully, because the labor market will have made progress and we have made huge progress on the health front. So uh, while there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, our focus remains on the labor market because we think that is the Fed's focus as well. They would rather right. tolerate a little bit of inflation for a little bit of better outcome on the labor market. I mean, Rubila, I know you don't want to talk about this, but, you know, I don't want to get you in the Carl Weinberg timeout chair. Let's link Carl's work together with your work, and that is the trade deficit, the fiscal deficit as well. Do you see any relief there, or do you just assume an expanding trade deficit to GDP, a stable or expanding fiscal deficit to GDP? Well, if you think about the trade deficit right now, what we are seeing are imbalances, right? I mean, the U.S. economy is open. The, the European economy is getting there, not quite there. So therefore, you have, you know, goods deficit in the record. I do expect some adjustment back as other economies reopen. 
So I don't expect that this trade deficit issue is going to be, uh, you know, it's just going to persist. I do think we're going to see adjustments, but uh, you know, on the on the uh, uh, on the fiscal on the uh, deficit side, uh, budget deficit side, I do think that what happens with uh, these negotiations is very important, and especially when we look at you know the Biden administration's push that this is not going to be a deficit finance. This is going to be uh, you know this is going to be paid for. So you know there's a lot of uncertainty, but I do think that we could come out on the other side of this, you know, maybe not as in bad a situation as a lot of people are expecting. Rubila, before we let you go, we're about two hours away from the initial jobless claims that we get every week. Increasingly, they are going down, and yet people say that they're very noisy and markets tend not to trade off them. Are they basically useless as any kind of indicator at this point? It's, it's really, um, I mean, we, we still follow it, but there, like you said, there is a lot of noise in the data. It's really surprising. It's puzzling why we would see 400,000 people get laid off each week, you know, these filings. What we are looking at is the continuing claims number. They are also, you know, extremely high, but uh, we do see value in it, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, it's a high frequency indicator, but I do play less, less weight on it because of the fact that, uh, it doesn't really seem to be connecting right now with what's happening with uh, the economy. Rubila Faruqi of High Frequency Economics, the chief US economist. We've got to leave it there. We get lucky with a gentleman from Arkansas in the 2nd Congressional uh, District. The Republican French Hill uh, joins us on four or five other topics, which he discard to talk about $6 trillion dollars. <laughs> A trillion here, a trillion there. Congressman Hill, I want you to go all Everett Dirksen on us and give me, forget about modern monetary theory, give me the modern French Hill theory about how all Americans adapt to 117% total debt of GDP 10 years out. Can we do this? Tom, uh, Lisa, good to be with you. We haven't seen this since the end of World War II when America was 50% of global GDP and that debt way over GDP was a result of fighting and winning a world war. Now we have embedded deficits for all the out years from our social safety net systems and by government growing as a percentage of GDP, I don't believe it's sustainable and my biggest concerns are the potential for creating inflation, once again going back to high inflation expectations, secondly the value of the dollar connected to that obviously, and the ability of servicing that debt as interest rates inevitably rise from their historically uh, below uh, zero level today. Other than winning in 2022, what is the appropriate Republican response to this budget is proposed? And again, I don't mean the one-year fiscal budget, Congressman, but right. the idea out 10 years. What's a cogent GOP response? Well, look, starting in 2010 to 2019, before the pandemic, as you will recall, the budget for discretionary spending was essentially flat. In fact, it declined in real terms. So Congress has the ability to control discretionary spending and better reform our mandatory spending programs like Medicare and Social Security. And we need to come back to reality after the pandemic, Tom, focus our spending, target our spending, reform our mandatory spending programs, and in my view, as a House Republican, not expand the role of government in our daily lives, which this budget does uh, in spades. 
There is a question, though, about useful spending and the idea that sometimes if you spend, you generate more growth. We saw that certainly uh, from the 1990s and the Clinton era. We've seen this over time. If you borrow, you can actually generate a more positive future. What is the distinction between good spending and bad spending right now? Well, first of all, I think there's a rational level of uh, spending too much, too fast on too, uh, on too many things that are not uh, rational spending. And you, you look at the 1990s, uh, President Bush and President Clinton had some modest tax increases, that's true, but you also had the peace dividend as the Soviet Union unraveled, and it allowed President Clinton to work with Congress to balance the budget by the end of the decade. And they did that through reform, including mandatory spending programs and, and, and other social spending. So again, it's targeting, it's reform those programs, it's look at ways to build our country. And when it comes to infrastructure, that would be a rational spending of public uh, money. That needs to be done in a targeted way with a principal focus on things that are really in need of repair and reform. Inflation has been an interesting debate, and that was one of the biggest arguments against running the deficit this deeply. Uh, a lot of people have come out and said they're worried about inflation. It's become a bipartisan, a, a sort of polarizing debate in Washington. How much inflation are you looking at that would be too much? I mean, are you looking at specific thresholds that would create a problem for the economy? Well, we have sharp increases in commodity prices. You look at lumber being the worst, perhaps. Uh, and Pres uh, uh, Chairman Powell hopes that these are transitory. But other members of the Open Market Committee, like President Kaplan at the Dallas Bank, are concerned uh, that if this gets out of hand, we will once again get into a 1970s uh, inflation expectation situation, <clears throat> where instead of trying to cut costs and improve productivity at businesses, we just uh, raise prices and suggest that up and down the supply chain, if we embed that, we're in trouble mm -hmm. on inflation. If we don't, it's transitory. French Hill, one of your charms is you actually have fairly close elections, unlike so many other people in Congress. French Hill, 55 percent, Joyce Elliott, 47 percent in the last go around. Republicans are going to win in 2022. A lot of experts tell us here you're the kind of district that's critical for them to sustain themselves to victory. Again, what do you need to do to get your district to take a more conservative stance? How do you sell that to America? Well, look, I think Americans are so rational. We operate off the kitchen table. We operate around <clears throat> our companies with our employees, and it's about using math and rationality. And we think borrowing money at the rate the Biden administration's proposing it and expanding government is not really a shared mm. value by most American families. So I think it's targeting, uh, Tom, and budget <clears throat> priorities, and that's what we need to be focused on as we come out of this pandemic. The clinic, French Hill, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated from the second district Best in Arkansas. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.